electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Central bank FOMO following the Fed's 75 basis point hike. Just about everyone is on the move today. England, Switzerland, Indonesia. Do these central banks have control of any of this anymore? Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson on the global fight against inflation led by Chairman Jay Powell. I think he's hoping that, but he might believe that, by definition, hope is not a strategy. And Alex Karp, he's CEO of data analytics company Palantir on modern warfare. Software plus heroism can really slay the giant. The high stakes at play in the war in Ukraine. It's a zero-sum game in in Russia, and there is no ability for Putin to lose. He can't just fail at, at war and then retire. Plus, the Disney heiress pulling back the curtain on inequality at the House of Mouse. Abigail Disney joins us. I know and I get it about costs, but labor isn't a cost. These are human beings that work as your partners in creating those profits. It is Thursday, September 22nd. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is on assignment. In the meantime, here we go. This is the first day after that big Fed decision and some pretty hawkish talk coming out of uh, Jay Powell. Good afternoon. My colleagues and I are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. Today, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point, and we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. What we hear from people when we meet with them is that, that they really are suffering from inflation. And if we want to set ourselves up, really, really light the way to another period of a very strong labor market, we have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. So what we need to do is get rates up to to the point where we're putting meaningful downward pressure on inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell, after raising interest rates another three quarters of one percent, show you what's happening with stocks all over the place. They initially dropped at 2 p.m. when we got the news. The market breath is definitely negative, four to one to the downside on the New York Stock Exchange. Down almost 500 points. Yesterday's losses really adding up to what we've been seeing with some steep losses that began last Tuesday with a decline of more than 1,200 points for the Dow after that hotter than expected inflation number. If you want to check out the swings in stocks yesterday afternoon amid that Fed rate decision and the news conference, you could see uh, it really hit rock bottom just at about 2.30 or so. Uh, but you could see by the end of the session down by 522 points. Treasury yields also on the move as the markets try to catch up with the Fed, because at this point, the expectation is you could see another 75 basis point hike come November. And so this was some 
huge market-moving news yesterday, and it's continuing this morning. Continuing this morning, and uh, let's talk about some breaking news that relates to all of this, because this is now taking place around the world. Japan intervening in the markets to try to prop up its currency. That's for the first time since 1998. This comes after the BOJ decided to keep its ultra-low interest rates. That commitment to low rates has pressured the yen, which has dropped about 22 cents, uh, 20, 22 cents, 22 percent uh, in value so far this year, heading into today. Meantime, uh, in Europe, the Swiss National Bank raising its key interest rate by 75 basis points today, bringing it out of negative territory. It only is the second hike in 15 years. And the SNB telling investors it can rule out, or it can't rule out, I should say, more hikes. So you're seeing this sort of in a broad-based way. And I think the real question is, do these central banks have control of any of this anymore? Yeah, uh, was some interesting questions happening with it. Um, you're watching the globe tightening. This is not just a U.S. story, although the U.S. has been first and it's been for, uh, out in the forefront, which is why the dollar is so much stronger. But clearly, that's creating a lot of problems, too. Joining us right now to talk about this theme of rising global rates is Roger Ferguson. He's former Fed vice chairman, also the former president and CEO of TIAA, a distinguished fellow for international economics with the Council on Foreign Relations and a CNBC contributor. And Roger, it seems like the market is finally getting the message that Jay Powell is serious when he says he is going to be moving rates to a, until they are sufficiently restrictive. Um, has the market caught up with the Fed, or is there more of a reckoning to come? I think the market has caught up with the Fed uh, as of today. I think the challenge is the Fed may find itself going maybe faster than it currently expects. And so I think that's a little bit of the dilemma here. Um, they were clear yesterday about the message of higher, more quickly, and for longer. And I think the market heard that. But now the incoming data, I think, will drive whether or not the Fed executes the plan as laid out or actually has to, you know, turn even a little faster. So I think that's the dilemma right now, Becky. Watching these other central banks today, Roger, I, I mean, the Fed's actions, this is not coordinated. They have not sat down together and said we're going to be doing these things. But what the Fed has done by tightening and watching the dollar strengthen, it doesn't leave much room for these other banks to do anything else. That's exactly right. Um, so the other banks are in uh, a bit of a dilemma. But we should also recognize that this inflationary challenge exists globally as well. So it's not just that these other banks are responding to the Fed. Um, if they weren't confronting inflation in their own countries or the fear of inflation in their own countries, they wouldn't necessarily have to follow. And so I think we've got the fact that inflation in some ways is global and all of them are moving in exactly the same direction. So we already started to hear the pushback yesterday from people in Congress, people in the Senate who are very concerned about what's going to happen to the economy. We've heard it from some other business leaders who have been raising concerns about this. And yet the Federal Reserve expectations, at least if you ask those who sit on the board, is that they're going to raise another 75 basis points come November. That's what they're expecting at this point. There is going to be political pushback. Will they be able, be able to withstand it? I think they have no choice. And I think Jay Powell was clear yesterday using words like resolve. He also recognized and put back into the conversation that um, it is their mandate as given by Congress to respond to inflation. Uh, it's one of the reasons you have an independent central bank. And he finally put this into a broader context, which is the overall long-term goal is much more balanced and sustainable growth, which everybody wants. So I think he's lined up his arguments as well as he can. Uh, and now it's a question of actually executing on the word resolve that he used several times. Hey, Roger, how much is he hoping that he can do some of this with jawboning as opposed to actually having to uh, continue to raise rates? Obviously, he will uh, to some extent going forward. But 
how much is he hoping that actually just by, by talking tough that he can shift the narrative and actually shift the economy unto itself? I think he's hoping that, but I also know, I also think that he might believe that by definition, hope is not a strategy. So why do I say he's hoping it? When you heard him talk yesterday about financial conditions, um, he was simply talking about the market anticipating, particularly the fixed income market and now equity markets, anticipating what is likely to come. And I believe he hopes that that will be, that will add, um, because the, the goal here in terms of transparency is to get the market to do some of your work for you. So I think that's one of the things he's hoping. On the other hand, I think he also knows if he doesn't deliver, as soon as he moves to that pause or take a, take a breath moment, uh, the, the markets might uh, get ahead of him and think, aha, they're starting to, to reverse. Roger, thank you. We always appreciate talking to you. Thank you. The CEOs of the nation's largest consumer banks appeared before the House Financial Services Committee yesterday. The committee will come to order. This hearing is entitled Holding Megabanks Accountable. CEO of U.S. Bank Corp. of the PNC Financial Services Group, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citicorp, Bank of America, of Truist, Wells Fargo. Would all of you please raise your right hands? In a six and a half hour hearing that covered issues ranging from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, growth in China, cryptocurrency, and the health of the consumer and the chances of a recession. Here's J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. I think the sooner that the Federal Reserve gets the hand around inflation, uh, so we avoid stagflation, that is the worst outcome, is inflation with no growth and unemployment, and that hurts the most people and the most businesses, et cetera. Uh, and second is to make sure we have a secure energy policy so that oil prices don't skyrocket. Energy is precarious. We know if we see it at 150, it'll cause a global recession. The group was asked about so many different things, one of which was how they would handle gun transactions after the ISO group approved a new merchant code for gun retailers. I can only speak for, for our own bank. Um, we do not intend to use the code to limit um, sales of firearms for our individual cardholders. You said you do not? We do not intend okay. to limit um, the, the purchase of uh, firearms by our individual cardholders as a result of the code. We actually don't know what they use it for, and we don't want to be in the business of telling American citizens what they can do with their money. We understand your concerns over the issue. It's a very interesting issue because the goal of creating that code was never to actually limit the banks from actually blocking the transactions. So it's a very, it's, there's sort of two people talking to two different sides of, of the aisle. The goal with the code was always so that effectively, if you did it right, you could monitor the transactions so if in fact you saw a suspicious pattern, it could be identified and reported. So the goal was never to actually get people to not... Yeah, but the goal and then what the liability becomes down the road, you can understand but, banks thinking, wait a second. But the, but the, but the reason why, they're, when I say they're talking past each other, the truth is we do this, and the banks, if they were asked directly when it comes to, as we've talked about, human trafficking, uh, folks who are, are working, you know, sex workers, in, 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 all sorts of people working in all sorts of industries, fraud, anti-fraud, money laundering. If you, if you asked Jamie Dimon or if you asked anybody and you said, look, do you block the transactions on, on Pornhub, for example, the answer is no, we don't block the transaction on Pornhub directly. But if we, if we saw a pattern where we thought that there was somebody that was, that was effectively being trafficked, we would report that back. 
And for that's most, what effectively for most this illegal, becomes. For most illegal activity. And if same, you're talking, same thing if with, you're talking la money laundering. Same thing with money laundering. If they you're don't talking block, trafficking or some of those but they issues. they don't block the transaction. Aren't they using things like crypto at this point? Because, I, I, I mean, I, I, I would think that a credit card is not the best way to try and pull off some of these transactions because it's so more closely monitored than any of this new crypto stuff that's out there. So the issue then becomes around credit. We've talked about this before, specifically with... You're talking with, about the guns in particular, with, with not guns, for but, credit uh, for human trafficking. No, I don't believe... I mean, I think that, that, unfortunately, some of it has moved into the crypto world, but I don't think that the entirety of it has moved into the crypto world. And the truth is, you can see the money flows back and forth, even from traditional banking systems into crypto. And so onto those, you know, by the way, I mean, those, I'm, I'm trying to differentiate those, that legitimate being, gun purchases from but illegal, that, that money is being reported. Activity. That money is being reported every single day, meaning when you move $10,000 from one bank to another, that's reported, right. but that's exactly. reported to the U.S. government. Right. And the only and, and, and they're looking for suspicious. I know it's just behavior. that we are regulating more and more of the stuff that is regulated. And there's this larger burgeoning. Oh, sure. Look, areas that are not regulated all sorts at all. Of component parts of the economic system that are completely unregulated. Maybe they should be. Maybe they shouldn't be. I think there's a whole debate about how that's ultimately going to work. But I think when you're looking at th this issue specifically, um, that I think the only point that I was going to make is when they say we're not, you know, we don't want to use the code to block purchases. They don't want to use the code to block purchases. And the, the point was never to use the code to quote unquote block purchases. The point was to actually use the code to identify suspicious behavior so that if there was a problem, they could try to try to get at it. Early. I know, but some of the arguments have been that they shouldn't allow credit cards to be used at any retailer that sells guns or does other things along those lines. You can understand why they be, may be more concerned about what is to come just based on the discussions of where this stuff started. Sure, but I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I don't think that's, I, all I'm saying is when I think you hear Jamie say what, he, what he's saying, and I think when you hear uh, Jane Fraser say what she's saying, there, there's a separation There was of some the pretty issues. crazy talk yesterday, though, not, not around about, this issue. About, about the, the energy business. Right, that was actually should you be financing, and, and that to me was, a, every, every congressional person's gonna come up and say, here's my wish list of all the things I want you to take care of. Will you promise that you will never loan any money Look, for additional I, fossil fuel production. I, I Jamie's wish, answer to that? Yeah, we should we no. should show that. It was actually fabulous because he basically said, of course, we're not going to do that. Right. But I think that's but a different. That, it's just that everybody comes with their wish list. These 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 CEOs have to sit there and take this. We want you to do this. We want you to do this. Will you promise that you will never charge an overdraft fee? Will you promise that you will never uh, that you will make sure that you loan money to everyone at half the rate of the going mortgage costs so that people can buy this again? They're, they're, the list of problems they want fixed, it's Enormous. Some of which are worthy, though, and, and some of which are less worthy. <laughs> Depending and that's, on who you are. Yeah. Well, and you want first-time Amer Americans to be first-time homebuyers again. Like, there, are, there are so many questions right. that they got put before them. And I think, for the most part, they had a lot of decent answers to those questions. Next on Squawk Pod, Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, a big data software company that specializes in anti-terrorism and defense work. Last time we spoke to him, he had a dark warning about the war in Ukraine. When we talked, you asked me what I thought would happen. It looked like, oh, there goes bat crazy Carp again with some crazy prognostication that will never happen. What Carp thinks today about the possibility of nuclear war in a conflict that is still raging. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. This morning, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin raising the stakes in its war with Ukraine. Putin says he's not bluffing when he says he's going to use all means to defend Russia, including potentially using nuclear weapons. Joining us right now to talk about this and Putin's nuclear threat is Alex Karp, CEO and co-founder of Palantir. And the last time we saw you in Aspen and prior to that in Davos, in some ways you called this in terms of this potential threat. The longer this war goes on with the Ukraine, uh, it, the longer, the, the more chance, you know, it's like the larger chance you have for miscalculation. Uh, and so, and then again, I don't think we're quite as tracked on these things as most people believe. And the, the risk that, that communication breaks down, that something happens, that there's an escalation, is just much greater than probably even in the Cold War. So where are we really at this point? Well, you know, we, it was a pleasure to talk to you then and a pleasure to talk to both of you now. Um, it, you know, when we were talking about uh, the, real, the reality that uh, nuclear weapons are on the table, three and two months ago, of course, that was derided. Um, the, 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 the general belief I had just comes from building a, a software business and seeing software in action in war, where software plus heroism can really slay the giant. And I think, I know the Russians just underestimated the power of kinetic plus software plus heroism. And then I believe it's a zero-sum game in, in Russia, and there is no ability for Putin to lose. He can't just fail at, at war and then retire, which is what we're used to in democracy. You know, politicians fail, and then they, we have another politician. Um, and, uh, and so the reason why I was call, sounding the alarm at Davos, and then again when we talked uh, to much derision, was simply this combination of uh, American software, the way we build software, plus a kind of heroism that is very unusual uh, would outperform uh, the giant of spend. And that leads to just this jarring reaction. Um, and we don't want to believe in the West that people would be zero sum. Uh, we're not that zero sum in the West. So basically he's been backed into a corner. He's a caged animal. He will it's, crazy it's, it's, that we You're can't. backed into a corner where the corner is if you fail, you will be, you'll be killed, your friends will be killed, the, your family will lose their and assets. So how do you then handicap what his options are? Well, and what the real possibility of him using nuclear what, what I be. believe we should do is continue to support Ukraine and begin to engage in a dialogue where we figure out what it looks like for him to fail without having to say at home he failed. Now, so what does that look like to you? Uh, well, Ukrainians have to decide. I believe that I believe I know having gone there that they very much believe that their territory should be respected. I think we in the West should re 
we should stick by the line that every country should be able to have its own sovereignty over its territory? I don't know, but I do know what it's very, it's the, the, thing, the things that we discussed and predicted that Ukraine would massively outperform have happened. The, 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 the danger scenario of massive outperformance is that your adversary is backed into a corner, whether that's- But if he's failing and, and we need to find a way for him to look like he hasn't failed, to his own people. What is, what is that? Well, we're very good at that in the U.S. We're always, we're failing at a lot of stuff and we convince ourselves we're not. Somebody, somebody has got to be, somebody who's very good at this. Like, what does a politician do for a living? I mean, I, I happen to be more on the left. Some people are more on the right. The job of a politician is to convince you you haven't failed and then get your vote. You sound like Henry Kissinger, though. So, we're basically, we're going to have to give something away, but it's uh, well, the Henry, I don't, you know, Henry, I, I discussed this with him. He believes that, it not, my belief is the Ukrainians decide. But you need someone who's not me. Like, I'm not adept. My job is to actually deliver something that works and win. There are people whose whole professions are to help you explain to your people why it wasn't a failure. I don't do that for a living. But I do know that somebody who does that for a living needs to be very engaged right now. Because the, when you, when, if, you've, look, if you've won something against all odds, whether it's a, you know, less importantly, a tech company, or you've defended your, no one, I don't actually believe most people in the West, in America and England, really believed Ukraine could win. And in fact, I know they didn't believe this because I, you know, through our clients hear what the assessments were. If you've won against all odds, you've cost your family, family members have died, there's no way you're going to compromise exactly. unless it's on your terms. That's why I think it's gotten so much more complicated. Yeah, exactly. And then you have to roll in people who are specialized at that. And people who are specialized that are called politicians. That's what they do for a living. And they need to sit down and figure out how do you, how do you explain to the Russian people that although you failed, it's not a failure. And there is a way to do that. But first you have to begin. And the beginning part is, look, if you've won something in a negotiation against all odds, both parties have to accept you've won. Well, first of all, let's just talk about that, which is some people would argue uh, Ukraine has not won yet and that we're going to have well, a very okay. difficult winter, right? That things may sort of calm down or at least temporarily slow down because well, of the weather. No, uh, and then, uh, yeah. and then, and then and then we have to see what happens. In I'm not, spring. I'm not, winning isn't won until you've won, obviously, but you have a perception based on expectations. If, if, if I go out onto a, a football court and am like a halfway surviving linebacker, I've won. And like this, nobody, we just, when we talked at Davos and we, you asked me what I thought would happen, it looked like, oh, there goes batch crazy carp again with some crazy prognostication that will never happen. Ukraine could win and it could be dangerous because they're going to win. That looked batshit crazy. In fact, that is the reality we're in. And we have to, you have to begin with the facts. The facts are they massively outperformed. By the way, this is going to change the way war is fought. Because here you have a tiny country with very little assets and they, in the use of software and heroism, you can push off and win against a, a Goliath. You use of software. Explain that. Well, the, the basic, this is the Palantir part right. of the story. Yeah, the yeah, part that we're not allowed to talk about is um, you, you just, in classic warfare, it just comes down to last post-World War II. America spends $800 billion, Russia spends, I don't know, $65 billion, but Russia thinks half of it is at waste, and they're willing to do things on the human rights front we would right. never do. So they think it's parity, right? Um, however, when you, when you use information technology, 
who's moving, what's moving, under what conditions, can you identify people from space, how can you identify, can you unmask people who are trying to mask themselves, what is the action of the battlefield, where do you put your assets, where are their most faced assets, this all, this plays in by the way into the American strategy of warfighting, which is quick, quick, quick attack, but you have to know where to attack, how do you, how do you deceive your adversary, you know America has been fighting wars, most of which I've been against for 20, 30 years, we've learned a lot about how to fight wars, the, the thing is that, and so we have this great knowledge of what it means, and part of that is something that is, both, is interestingly very cheap to produce, but it really is best produced in the West. Why is software best produced in the West? Would you want to run a software company in Russia or China and get it, you lose it, so. You, you just mentioned China. Is there a lesson that you think the Chinese are learning about war and about, to the extent that they're thinking about the future of Taiwan and how that may relate to what's happening in Ukraine? Every country in the world, including China, and they're like, we should never underestimate our adversaries. These are some of the most interesting, formidable, and creative, intelligent, wise cultures in the world. And they are very much, again, looking at what their expectation was and what was reality. The expectation was probably this last month, maximal, and reality. And then they're, I'm sure, looking at, we're spending gazillions, they're spending a lot less, what is special about what they're doing that's allowing them to massively outperform? And again, in a much less relevant context, why is tech dominated by America? It's like, well, there are all these reasons you have to understand. And with 100% certainty, every country in the world that is big is saying, holy sh**, we thought we could just win because we're big. If the people are willing to fight to die, and if they have very specialized, not very costly software and other products and kinetic weapons, tanks, but, but not really the big ones. They can outperform us and grind us into the dust. And that changes the way the world actually works today. Here's a software question. How do you think about the Chinese in terms of their um, talents, abilities? Well, this is again, we tend to think we are at a massive disadvantage in the West because we won't violate human rights. But actually, we're at, we have a massive advantage. And just explain that. You, the the well, argument most, is because, no, because we won't violate human rights and because of civil liberties, we don't have access to the same kind of data stream. Well, we don't. We, for example, we would not support something that tracks everyone walking by here and tells us what they're doing during their lunch hour when they say they're at work. Right. We just don't. I don't support that. I don't think anyone here supports it. You have debate, but it's pretty actually on international standards in a very narrow spectrum. Some people are in favor of knowing that if someone's a terrorist, you get in debates who's a terrorist, who's not. But no one supports broad broad surveillance of the Chinese nationalist kind that is supported, by the way, by wide swaths of the world. Most people look at that as a disadvantage. I'll tell you that's an advantage. Why? Because we focused all our efforts for the one area that actually matters, fighting wars. And by the way, if you're going to build software for that, you need the best of the best of the best of the best. Those people don't want to build companies in countries where you could lose your company. They don't want to build, by and large, it's certainly at my company, we don't want to build technologies that stop us from having a normal social life, including a normal social life means things we're not actually wanting to discuss in public. Alex, if, if all of this gives us such an advantage, why have we seen such a hit to so many software companies? I think you guys are down 58% this year in your stock price. Well, you know, well, look, bad times are, are incredibly good for Palantir because you, you, you sort out, you get the durable. There's, there's this thing where you, we, when you've been involved in things for a lot long years, like Palantir's 20 years old, 18 years old, the bad times really uncover the durable companies. And tech is going through bad times. And there are lots of reasons, interest rates, other reasons. But you will see that the durable companies that come out of this, 
in three, four years, two years, however long it takes, are largely going to be from America, largely from the West Coast, and they're going to be very focused on producing things that actually matter. Will, will this, will this like, deadly tidal wave wipe out some companies? Yes, it will. And what, what are you seeing when we were talking about employment and labor in terms of your employment and being able to hire talent? What are you seeing right now? Look, bad times. How easy or hard it is. Plus, by the way, I imagine there are a lot of employees sitting looking at the stock price saying I'm underwater or I'm, you know, I have half of what I thought I had. Well, look, we built Palantir. We are, we are private for almost 16 years and our share price on the non-private market was going down. So like these times in the end, bad times help us also because the alternatives end up being like our main competition is uh, I want to be a cockroachholder.com who recruits our people. That's our actual competition, a startup that is two days away from failing, but engineers don't know it. Those companies aren't getting funding. And so like instead of going to mycockroachtrap.com, people are like, yeah, the stock is down, that we're doing crazy important things, and the alternatives suck. Do you see, in terms of clients though right now, spending, I mean, on the corporate side and even on the government side? given what's happening in the economy? We, we, we see a big difference between U.S. and, to be frank, uh, probably too frank, the, the, the U.S. is just completely different than everywhere else. Our U.S. business has grown 67% a year the last three years, from 233 million to just over a billion. The rest of the world, yeah, people react. Americans, for all of our foibles, we react to bad times by rolling up our sleeves and adapting. The rest of the world has trouble with adapting at the pace we adapt. So yes, our business is being, is being negatively afflicted by the inability to, in other countries to adapt the way they adapt, we adapt in America. On the other hand, you know, we're, we're an 18-year-old business. The last three years, our largest, our, uh, the American segment is growing 67%, despite me as a front man. So it's like, you know, maybe if we, they, you know, we, we have a more successful front man, we can even, I don't know, I'm not planning to go anywhere, but it's like, we're, we're, despite or because of our various disabilities, we're growing 67% a year in the most important, most interesting market in the world. And yes, we, we are not growing that way in Germany and France and other places. And I don't expect to grow that way. I do think there'll be a handoff. What I think is going to happen is we're going to have a couple years of terrible times. Uh, those companies that are the most robust will survive and thrive. You'll get credit for it in a couple years, and the rest of the world will do what it often does. It'll follow what we did well while deriding us for how crazy it is in America. Do you see a recession coming around the globe? Do you see a recession coming here? I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard at all. A lot of that's definitional, but what I do see is that people are scared shitless about energy outside of America. They're, 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 more, they're so scared about the macro uh, political conditions that no one wants to talk about them. Their enterprises are built for a static, unified world of peace. Uh, and the balance sheets obviously are not often prepared for what's going to happen, which I think is going to be pretty bad the next couple years, politically, economically. And then also, you know, that's actually the real problem you have in tech. If you've, been, if you've been raised in an orgiastic environment where you go from high grades in high school to high grades in college to being a billionaire, you've never seen bad times. The, bad, the worst time you've seen is you can't get a date in high school. That's your bad times. Alex Carp, never want to hold back. Uh, so glad we're on cable rather than broadcast this morning. No. Uh, we appreciate you being here. I appreciate it's being always, here. Uh, always, always being candid with us. And um, it's something. So we look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. You, you, don't need, you, you can hang out. Oh. You don't need to get off We're the going set. To break. Just, I just, I'm used to getting thrown out as soon as the... It's all good. As soon as the... Oh, time to go. <laughs>
cheese will be next. Coming up, a Disney princess takes aim at the castle. Abigail Disney and her fight against inequality at the company that her grandfather co-founded. This is the story of the American corporate culture and how it's changed very radically over the last 50 years. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Meantime, let's talk about a new film. It's titled The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. It takes aim at Disney and the wage gap between employees and executives. By a show of hands, how many of you have someone you know that works at Disney that's on food stamps? Wow. Joining us right now is Abigail Disney. She's a documentary filmmaker and, of course, the granddaughter of one of the founders of the Walt Disney Company. It's very nice to see you. Good to see you. Um, we haven't seen each other in a very, very long time. <laughs> as well. And the genesis of this film, in a very strange and unexpected way, yeah. may have come from a question that we asked you yes. right here on Squawk Box. How much of this is about taxes in your mind? Or do you say to yourself, you know what, maybe corporate America is being paid too much? How, oh what, how do you balance those issues? That's true, because I came on here to talk about taxing the wealthy, and you just drew this little hand grenade at me, which was a question about What was Bob. the hand grenade? It was, what do you think about Bob Iger's compensation? Our CEO's paid too much. That's what you asked me. Yeah. And I felt like, oh, wait, I haven't thought this through. Should I actually say what I think here on live television? I'm not sure. I haven't run this through my strategic brain yet. But I went ahead. My policy is just to tell the truth. So I went ahead and said what I thought, which was Jesus Christ himself isn't worth that much money. Do you think wealthy. that Bob Iger's overpaid? I think you that CEOs him. in general are I imagine paid you a lot of Disney stock, right? I'm not going to come out and say that. Uh, uh, but I will say that if your CEO salary is, is at the 700, 600, 500 times your median workers paid, then there is nobody on earth. Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 500 times his median so workers. What and it went a little crazy online. Went a little viral, if I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and and because it went a little viral, I put out this Twitter thread. Um, so a year before you asked me that question, I had been to visit to Anaheim for the first time to visit the workers and to hear directly from them about what was happening for them in the park. And I thought, I, there was something I have to do. I mean, I can't walk away from this and pretend that this has nothing to do with me. But I was just paralyzed. And when you asked me that question, and I clearly struck a nerve. It seemed like it was possible um, to, to talk about the wages at the bottom and the wages at the top as though they were a single issue, because they are. Um, and, and when I started to yoke those things, that's right. when things went crazy. How we much of this film. film is about Disney specifically, and how much of it is a microcosm or representation of what you think is happening 
in the economy writ large. Well, you basically just named the whole point of the film because, like, who, who needs just a film about one company? This, this is the story of the American corporate culture and how it's changed very radically over the last 50 years, very more radically, I think, than any of us really appreciates. I, I lived through it. I watched it change. And I watched it through the people I knew, which were my grandfather and the people that we would encounter when we would go to the park, and then through my own encounters with the workers there 50 years later. So it seemed important because Disney really is synecdoche for America. It, everything about it is a reflection of American question, history. Is, and I'm very sympathetic, obviously, to, to well, I'm sympathetic to workers and sympathetic yeah. to executives on all sides yeah. of this. Yeah. And there is cross currents of pressure. Yes. Um, and I was going to say, even in the past couple of weeks, you've seen uh, Dan Loeb, the activist investor, uh -huh. right. uh, at one point attacking those the, now, I think, uh, moved aside temporarily, right. at least, uh, around Disney. Because there's pressure from investors on one side saying, you're not doing enough, right. uh, both right. on costs or just revenue opportunities. Right. And on the other side, there's you. Right. And so the question is, if you're leading a company like Disney today, who you're supposed to listen to? And do you give credit at all to the growth of Disney? Meaning there's some, something fabulous about what Disney has, has done over the years and right. employs 200,000 right. some odd people. Right. And so how do you think about that yeah. versus, and I, I don't know how, you know, what you think of the wage issue and, and how uh, large an issue it is mm -hmm. or how small an issue it is specifically at Disney. Well, here, the, what, the growth is extraordinary and goodness knows as a shareholder, I'm delighted by it, I'm grateful. But I think there's just been an overemphasis on shareholders and an old overemphasis on management. The, there, I can't, I may get the number wrong, but I think it was something in the region of eight billion dollars in share buybacks in the years leading into the pandemic. Well, first of all, um, did we did did the shareholders need all eight billion dollars in in that, or did some of it belong to the people who produced those profits through the sweat of their daily work? That's one question. So do we, can we really say that paying workers better comes at the expense of shareholders? Or does it come at the expense of shareholders not necessarily getting all that much growth? Um, so it, 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 what is the proper division of these things is a really right. important basic Let me ask question. you another one, which I think is actually very hard to grapple with, which is the market. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that most companies do is mm -hmm. uh, they pay what the market um, yes. allows yes. for. Right. right. It's right. very rare right. where right. somebody in the hiring position sits around and says, can I pay you more? Right. You know, can I pay you a premium right. above market? Right. 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 And so how much of this is about the yeah. price tag that Disney pays versus the price tag that people are paying for better or worse yeah. Uh, yeah. in Orlando, for yeah. example? The, the problem with relying on the market too heavily for figuring out what you should be paying people is the market is in a state of near collusion around the idea of what you pay hourly workers. I mean, it is everything short of collusion in the sense that if I go to McDonald's, if I go to Wednesdays, if I go to Amazon, if I go to a lot of places, I'm going to get something in the same range. Um, but isn't that so because that's, that's the market? That's what the market decided. Right. But the market has also decided that there has to be this, these huge rewards for shareholders, huge rewards for management. It, it, we're not, there's so much cash floating around in American businesses today. Right. They're so, so profitable. And we're not using that cash to reward workers. Why should they live at the very bottom of what is tolerable or acceptable right. um, in the public eye? I, I just don't understand. I know and I get it about costs, but labor isn't a cost. 
These are human beings that work as your partners in creating those profits. And if they're your partners, they're, how are they different from management and why are we not thinking differently about keeping them with you and right. retaining them and, and giving them livelihoods? It's a larger conversation. Yes. Uh, it's actually a documentary. It's a documentary. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating one. And uh, yeah. we encourage people to go uh, check it out. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. Friday, it starts streaming Friday. Starts streaming um, on? On Amazon, Voodoo, iTunes, all the places you go, regular ones. Um, American Dream and other fairy tales. And I'm assuming not on Disney Plus. And not on Disney or Hulu. Not, yes. not on Disney Plus. <laughs> uh, we should say uh, that uh, we got a statement from Disney mm -hmm. uh, after your, your tweet uh, <laughs> that you were going to be coming on the broadcast. Um, and they say the following, our amazing cast members, storytellers, and employees are the heart and soul of Disney, and their well-being is our priority. We work hard to ensure that our team is supported in ways that enable them to grow their careers, care for their families, and thrive at work. It all starts with competitive pay, they say, uh, and leading entry wages, but also includes affordable medical coverage and access to tuition, freer, uh, free higher education, subsidized child care for eligible employees, and they go on. So and they do just, go on. Just to give uh, all sides of... Uh, all sides of the debate. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis and interviews from our TV show right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod. We're available for free wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.